Well, you may ask, why preach on this passage? It's so confusing. And it is a very confusing passage. In fact, uh, scholars as notable as Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther, who wrote in his commentary on Peter and Jude, of these verses he said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. So, we're going to go into uncertain territory in some of this, but I thought it's important stuff and we should look at it because just because a passage of scripture is difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't attend to it. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The notion of dying for sins can be understood in at least two ways. For those of us who have a religious leaning, we've been taught that dying for sins is a placating of an angry God, an angry deity. The idea that death is for God, the death is for God's sake, that um, the sacrifice is designed to make God happy again in some way. And this is an ancient and long-held tradition, and it helps us to understand where it came from, I think. The evidence indicates that ancient kind of proto-communities of humans serendipitously discovered that the whole group could rally around the condemnation of a single victim and thereby save their community from tearing itself apart when antagonisms got too heated. A a comedic example of this is uh, if you watch old Western movies and there's a scene in the old bar or the saloon and there'll be two people having a disagreement and one might push the other and as the other falls back, he bumps someone at the bar who's having their drink and they spill their drink and they turn, the guy turns around. Now, the guy who bumped him's already moved on, but the fellow turns around and socks the guy who's next to him. He goes, what's that for? And he gets into it and they bump someone else and soon enough, the whole thing is a big bar fight. It's great fun. They often do that in funny films. And, but it's actually a true dynamic. We, we see the whole thing erupt very quickly. We might be more subtle in our fighting these days. You might think, oh, we don't do that. But um, left unchecked, this dynamic of intra-tribal upset can destroy, destroy a group. And if you think we're too sophisticated to do that, you obviously haven't been on social media lately because it happens all the time. Now, often enough, the upset devolves and the antagonisms get transferred onto smaller and sm- a smaller and smaller minority until perhaps one is selected to carry the burden of guilt for the whole upheaval. And you see this when in the movie, the sheriff eventually arrives. And who's held responsible? Well, the outsider, the most recent arrival, or the guy that everybody doesn't like. It's got nothing at all to do with what actually happened. They just find a victim to blame, even though he may have had nothing at all to do with it. And to the uninitiated, the use of a sacrifice of this kind appears to avert a threat, a threat that is bigger than the group because it's going to destroy the group. But in reality, it's a threat that arises from within the group. So with that in mind, I think a more straightforward reading of the phrase dying for sins is simply dying because of sin. The cause is not that the deity needs to be satisfied. The cause is actually the sinful action. 
And if we look closely at how Jesus came to be put to death on a cross, the gospel stories make it quite clear that this is a deliberate outcome engineered by the most powerful people in the community of the day. It becomes clear that both the religious and the civic authorities of the day want to crucify Jesus. It It was the far and away the tidiest way for them to deal with the challenges that they were facing because the religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat to their position and their power. He challenged their authority and these leaders had conflated themselves with God and so anything they didn't approve of, they deemed blasphemous. So they called witnesses to testify against Jesus. As we read in Matthew 26, 59 and 60, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Innocent person being blamed. Pilate simply wanted to avoid civil unrest. His interest was not being noticed in an unfavourable way by Rome. And even though Pilate openly declared he saw Jesus as innocent, he acquiesced as well. In Mark chapter 15, verses 12 to 14, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you have called the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate decided he's innocent, but this is the tidiest way to deal with this situation. So the significance of Christ's innocence can also be understood in a range of ways. In the the theological way that I was referring to earlier, where we we think God needs to have a sacrifice, it's, it's this idea that if you are an innocent sacrifice, you can bear even more sin of other people. And that's an idea that like a pure vessel can carry the whole world's sin. That's a theological idea. I think a more direct understanding is that Christ's innocence destroys the underlying sacrificial deception. You cannot lay the blame of the obviously guilty on one who is clearly innocent and get away with it. It exposes the lie, the injustice, even the immorality at the heart of a system of blood sacrifice itself. If we make the just die for the unjust, then that is an unjust process. And who are the unjust? Well, that's all of us. We are the unjust. Because in the same ways that our that the people at the time of Jesus turned away from him or accused him or blamed him, we do that all the time as well. We blame, we condemn, we abandon the innocent when that suits our interests. The gospel stories are told so as to make it really clear that the crowds and the bystanders are actually active participants. The bystanders cry out for Jesus' blood and even the closest disciples actively abandon Jesus' when they feel threatened. In short, for Jesus to have been killed in the manner that he was, all the people had to participate in the way that they did. And this was their sin, going with the flow or not standing against it. It is injustice we all participate in. 
And then there's this passage that says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And this is very, very obscure stuff. Some people read here an idea that Jesus went on a preaching tour while he was in hell after he died and addressed imprisoned spirits of the dead. I think we can understand the phrase made proclamation to the spirits now in prison to be simply the preaching of the gospel in general. Because the most profound imprisonment, of course, is fear. Fear of exclusion, fear of rejection, fear of condemnation, fear of harm. Based on this baseline of fear, which is not an irrational fear either, all those things are genuine threats in life, um, these things cause us to limit our risks. We avoid things when there isn't a predetermined desirable outcome that can be secured before we start, as it were. And that covers a significant part of life, really. In fact, the only sure way to predetermine an outcome is to shut down things. While ever something is alive, it could potentially go in all manner of directions of which we have no control. If you require a predetermined outcome, you want control. If you're wanting to extend your own will over your whole world of experience and you don't want anything new or different or that's making its own decisions, that's just too risky. In some ways, we can see this in our experience of the way COVID-19 has been managed. And I'm not wanting to critique or criticise the way it's been managed. I just want to draw out something that I'm sure you're all aware of from our experience. See, we want to control something that is manifestly outside of our control. A virus has come in. It's not under our control. We want to control it. So we progressively shut down normal life until we get it under control and find the control we need. Now, different states in Australia have had different experiences of the virus, and as a consequence, they are, there's different political appetites for risk. Some states want to shut everything down really quickly at the first hint, and others are more lenient or take a different approach. But one thing is sure, no matter how much of an introvert you might be, we cannot live shut down. Everything we enjoy would eventually shut down. In time, more of the basic essentials we need to survive would also become scarcer, and in due course, taken to the extreme, we would no longer be able to generate the resources to sustain society if we stayed shut down. There is something worse than death, and that is being too frightened to live spirits imprisoned. The more you're invested in the status quo, of course, the greater the threat of anything outside the status quo. And this is part of the issue for Pilate and the religious authorities. They were heavily invested in the way things were and Jesus represented a challenge to their business as usual. What Pilate and the religious leaders did not see was how they themselves were actually imprisoned by their status quo. They appeared to be powerful, but their power was very contingent on the world remaining configured in a very particular way because not long after Jesus' death, Pilate himself was either put to death or ordered to suicide by the Emperor Caligula. 
and the Jerusalem temple, the seat of power for the religious authorities, was sacked, overthrown within a generation of Jesus' crucifixion. The world these powerful people inhabited changed quickly and dramatically and they could not escape because they had locked themselves in with their vested interests that had worked for them up till that point. So there's another tricky saying here, corresponding to Noah and the ark, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. Now everybody in Israel, all the Jews, knew the story of Noah and his ark. The ark that carried Noah and his family and all those animals through the devastating flood, Noah was saved from the onslaught. The ark protected Noah and his family. The floodwaters inundated everybody else. Now the interesting thing is the ark did not change the floodwaters. They still came, but they protected the people. They were, the ark was a critical survival thing in a hostile environment. And baptism functions in much the same way for us, not by some kind of magic, but baptism is a tangible sign that we have made the decision to follow Jesus. It marks us out to others and, most importantly, I think, to ourselves. Baptism is a sacrament that reminds us we are released from our sins. Now, that doesn't mean we no longer sin, because I know you do. I'm damn sure I do. (laughs) But there is a fundamental change in our relationship with sin. Before baptism, we lived for ourselves. We sinned and didn't know about it or care about it most of the time. But baptism is a sign that we now live for Christ rather than for ourselves. We now know that eternal life is found not in looking out for ourselves first, but walking in the way of Christ. Challenges threaten to overwhelm our discipleship all the time. Challenges from the world outside of us and trickier ones from the world inside of us. And no matter what happens or how we feel we're doing or not doing, baptism reminds us that we belong to Christ. It was Martin Luther who was tormented by his awareness of the devil and he is said to have responded, often throwing his inkwell at apparitions or in directions where he thought the torment was coming from. And he would say, you have no claim on me. I am baptised. I am of Christ. And you might think, well, how does that give us a clear conscience? Even if we're really disciplined in regard to doing what we believe to be good and right, everyone slips sometimes. What do we do then? We come clean. We confess. We turn away from doing wrong, the wrong that we've done. And the grace of Christ offers the enabling power to confess and repent. Grace means we are not condemned. Neither we nor anyone else is to be sacrificed to pay for our sin. Rather, we trust God and can entrust ourselves to God because God has gone to such lengths to make the truth known to us. Our God is not afraid of truth and does not punish us for the truth. When my girls were little, Joe and I had very different approaches 
to parenting. Broadly, Joe was well-informed, engaged long-term strategies and was mostly deliberate. By contrast, I was not very well-informed, fairly focused on getting through the next five minutes and had more of a tendency to be reactionary. And this is true. Sometimes, in difficult situations that I found myself in, particularly with the littlest one, to ease the situation, I might resort to a little bit of bribery, like buying ice cream, something like that. And I would often say to Pay, don't tell Mum. <laughs> I don't want to know how bad my parenting is at the moment. Of course, the first thing that Pay would do when she met up with Mum again was, guess what? We had ice cream. <laughs> She was not burdened with holding secrets because she had no fear of the consequences of spilling the beans. And in a similar manner, we can be honest before God. We need not fear. God loves us. God has always loved us and God will always love us. We come alive in that love when we trust it is so. The path to a clean conscience is the path to entering ever more fully into our lives. You see, Peter's message is very, very important, I think. Jesus died on account of sin, the just for the unjust. And in doing so, he exposed the lie that blood sacrifice pleases God and made it clear that it was never God who lusts for blood. Rather, our God is committed to us and to that which is true. And God has put everything in place to enable us to be saved. We have been marked as belonging to Christ by the sign of baptism, which will hold us safe through the hostile environment that is around us and within us. And our confidence in God's grace enables us not to hide, but to come clean and to turn away from our selfishness to follow the way of Christ, the only eternal way. All other ways have been submitted under his feet to the glory of his name. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and exposed us to the truth of the love of God, that we don't need to play games or to hide but we can come clean before you and live fully and freely in your love to the glory of your name. Amen.